when you look at the evidence around consumption of sugar, particularly for teenagers, it's almost a third of their mm. total sugar intake. So it's about saying, can you find a product where reducing it makes a difference, but also where there's a directly equivalent product that people can switch to. Because it's just a gentle nudge. If you've got two products and one's 20% more expensive than the other, which one do you choose? You tend to, so it just nudges your way, all of the proceeds from the tax, to put towards a really um, worthwhile program in our communities and schools. I think we could also direct it towards the most disadvantaged communities. So I think that the, the nub of this is that data that shows that one in four of the most disadvantaged children are not just overweight but obese when they leave primary school. And that's double the rate in the most advantaged decile. Yeah, just, um, just going back to the beginning, yeah. um, it seems that everything in our environment is you know, geared towards us uh, increasing mm -hmm. uh, consumption of calories. Um, and it seems that everything in Kind of legislation up to this point has been about actively increasing it through maybe the common agricultural policy, making sure that food's cheaper and things, and mm -hmm. um, sugar in particular, um, and and uh, a lack of regulation around around the, you know, sugar and, and things like that. So why do you think we've got to that point now? Is it governments just? Turn to blind eye, or is it just because it's so difficult to to tackle? I think it is just difficult to, to tackle, and that we are awash everywhere in our environment now with cheap food, and so we've allowed industry to, you know, of course, are entirely driven by profit. That, that's their job is to drive profits for their shareholders, and in doing so, they've realised that aggressive marketing, product placement, discounting actually improves their their profits. Time now for government to say there's been a consequence of that and the consequence of that is you know, a, a really unacceptable health inequality that's that's growing and and the kind of costs that that's putting on all of us as a society. So not just the costs for individual children which is extremely because of their lifetime health costs um, and their current costs in terms of things like bullying but actually cost to all of us. So it's costing the NHS an estimated 5.1 billion a year. Um, but if you look at the, the, the fact that this is a uh, contributor to diabetes, well already for type two, for, for diabetes, it's 9% it's, it's of the entire NHS budget. And that is a staggering statistic. You had um, quite a lot of uh, involvement from industry, yes. you know, you talk to them uh, as part of your, your process. How did they respond to the fat and uh, the Interesting, but, tax? well clearly, I mean, you know, the Food and Drink Federation don't like it at all, as you might imagine. <laughs> and, you know, it's a sure sign if industry don't like it, it's because it's probably going to work. Um, however, I think we were, you know, the British Retail Consortium actually is much more open to measures that reduce, um, but what they, what they want is a level playing field. Because if you look at, probably the single most effective measure would be to look at deep discounting. So it's interesting that 40% of all the foods that we have, foods and drink that we have in our house, tends now to be bought through deep discount promotions. And 
we know that goes to the heart of uh, profitability. So if you have some parts of the sector introducing measures that affect deep discounting and things like product placement, and others don't, then that's really not fair on those those retailers who are making sensible changes. So they want to level the playing field. Mm. How um, do you get that though? Because at the moment through regulation. Just, yeah. and so I think the, the point is, what do you do through voluntary measures? So if you look at something like salt reformulation over 10 years, it was at its most effective when you had, um, you had sort of, if you like, a big stick approach in that industry were called in and asked to make changes um, and the FSA were there in the background with the big stick and, and industry knew that if they didn't do it that there would, the regulation would follow. When we moved to the responsibility deal approach, things slowed down because, and I think there is a sense in which just having a, a purely voluntary approach isn't as effective as knowing you've got clear guidance from government with a big stick in the background if, if things don't change. Because sugar reduction is a bit more challenging uh, than salt reduction. Um, and it also happens slowly. And we feel that if you want to have a bigger win, you can use more substitution alongside a gradual down, downgrading of sweetness. So you can use substitutes within that, but you still have to try and adjust the nation's palate over a long period of time. Salt has managed to do that, but yep. then people don't buy the products in the same way for salt as they do for sugar, it's, mm. it's more attractive. Mm. They're kind of more designed almost to, to see how sugar. We are indeed, and there are lots of things that we're going in the wrong direction. So that kind of super-sized culture, you bottomed us up. Can't we have more action on a default size, a sensible default? And the thing is, it doesn't stop people if they really want to have a litre of drink, buying several cups, but mostly we tend to stick with the default. Every aspect of this may in itself achieve a very small reduction, but added together, then you start to see a big effect. Um, so, you know, for example, if you look at our choices around confectionery, around a third of all the confectionery we buy comes from directly seed, in other words, impulse buys. We, we all know kind of like, anyone who struggles with their weight, generally, wants to try and reduce their calories but there's what you know and you plan to do and then there's what happens when you're in an impulse situation planning at a checkout and then once you've bought it of course then you tend to eat it well, yeah. isn't, it doesn't stay in the cupboard so um so trying to reduce that kind of impulse by temptation and and the number of situations now where you'll flog this stuff is extraordinary so you know, you buy a newspaper and someone tries to flog you a kind of chocolate ultra cheap as part of a deal with your newspaper. Well, you didn't actually go to buy the chocolate, you just ended up having it when you were really only intending to buy a newspaper. That kind of thing really doesn't help. So how can we across the board look at all the ways we can take the sort of impulse buy element out? And I think people will recognise that, will we'll welcome that, particularly parents. They don't really want to have chicanes of sweets as they're queuing with their children. It's, it makes life difficult. So that needs to happen as well. We need portion sizing, we need reformulation across the measure. And, and say sugary drinks tax will just be one of a number of those. And the other thing I think here is about what you do with the money. Um, we're seeing nearly 4% year on year coming out of the public health grant. 
in spending with you. Where is the money we're going to have to complete that part of the five year forward view, which was all around prevention? And so I think that given that the Chancellor is taking money out of public health, I think this would be a way that we can put between 300 million and a billion, possibly, depending on where the tax was set, um, back into purely public health measures. And I think it would be directing that specifically to children in the most disadvantaged groups would again answer that accusation that this is regressive if you return the benefit to those who need it most. Have you had any sort of idea about how that potential tax is used by the Chancellor? Well, I mean, the, the government have already stated that they would prefer not to include a, a sugary drinks tax. Um, I think the point about having um, a review, again, we know that it was one of the recommendations from Public Health England. I think what we now need is a mobilisation of those who can see the harms and the, the, the degree of harm from childhood obesity to try and get out there and make the argument that this isn't regressive, because that is what industry will do. They, they mobilise to say this is a tax on, on the poor. I would say obesity is taking a terrible toll on the poorest in our society, and this is an opportunity to bring funding in to directly help to, to narrow that gap. Because the interesting thing, of course, about programmes like education, which was made strongly to us in our evidence session, was that education tends to be taken up by those who are the most advantaged already. And so you can end up, as an unintended consequence, actually widening the gap. So you've addressed um, sugar-sweetened beverages, mm -hmm. um, fizzy drinks, things like that and the sort of buy one get one free mm. um, model. Have you got, um, you acknowledge in the report that you know, those are only two areas of, of, kind of increased calorie intake. Mm. Um, what do you think about other ones, like reducing fat in, of course. in people's diets? Absolutely, and yeah, we could absolutely be uh, you know, clear that it's not just about sugar and it isn't a report about demonising sugar. And there are many other ways we need to tackle this as well. If you look, for example, at the pervasive effect of advertising for junk food, you know, that is often very fatty, salty food. Um, we'd like to see the watershed apply to nine for unhealthy foods. Uh, we'd also like to see action on the, the marketing that goes on within, for example, advert games that are very persuasive for children, the way that we use celebrities and cartoon characters to endorse products, and also the kinds of standards that that actually counter something not being unhealthy. So, you know, you can have a breakfast cereal with 22% sugar, which still doesn't come into the criteria of being too unhealthy to advertise to children. So we think we need to have a review of that. So that sort of pervasive marketing to children we think is part of it. Um, we also think, for example, we need to do things about um, clear enabling because if you look at some of these bottles of fizzies, sugar sweetened drinks, some of them contain 14 teaspoons of sugar. Now, it's very difficult to actually, I've been looking at some of the labels this morning, it's very difficult to actually see that starkly in print. And, and I think that alongside that we have to look obviously at the role of exercise and activity. But what we didn't want industry to be able to do was to try and make the argument that they sometimes do that this is all about a bit more exercise and a bit more education for parents. And, 
I'm afraid there's no evidence that that will be effective on its own. We've portion sizes increased and that's reset our kind of expectation about what we need. Um, food's got cheaper. How do you think? How can we motivate the public to get behind us? It's difficult because you're you're up against an industry which already is mobilising today to say that this is all about the nanny state, this is all about taxing the poor. And these are really powerful messages that they will put out to try and put fightness on anyone who tries to address it. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are we, are we here to be on the side of, of, of children who are struggling with a lifetime of health costs? Or are we on the side of big sugar and big industry? And, and I think the government's got to ask itself very carefully where it wants to be on that continuum. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's interesting, this is all about looking at the sort of Taking a holistic view of, yeah. of the way all these factors work together. Um, I was going to ask you, sort of going off topic slightly, uh, you wrote in the Telegraph recently about the, the need for joined up social care to, to keep the NHS going. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your, your stance there? Well, my view is that you can't view social care as separate from the NHS. Anybody who works in any casualty department will tell you that the real problem causing winter pressures, the key one is exit block. Unless we can improve the flows through hospital, I'm afraid you can keep pouring money in at the top end. And the front loading is very welcome, but some of that has come from, um, if you like, transfers, say for example from the public health budget, from Health Education England, and these kind of sources. And, Social care is going to be under pressure like never before. They've got to now find the cost of the living wage, and everybody welcomes the fact that, that we need to have higher wages within social care. And we needed to start paying for travel costs fairly. So that's all very welcome, but it's councils that are essentially going to be carrying the burden of funding that increase in the living wage. And yes, transferring business rates to councils will give them a bit more flexibility as will um, being able to have a, a levy, a, a, like a, a preset for social care for up to 2%. But that will just about tick over. It won't, it won't cover the full increase in the cost of demand and the, and the cost of uh, funding the, the rising living wage. So I'm afraid, I, I, you know, I do think we need to have a fair funding settlement for social mm. and It seems like the, the money that goes to the central NHS part yeah. is politically expedient rather than, you know, as a, a look at sort of trying to increase the, the health of the nation. Um, yeah, I think that the, the case was made, and certainly Simon Stephen has made a, yeah. a very powerful case for as, as did lots of other people, I mean, I'm myself just one of many, having to make direct representations to the Chancellor. I bet you can't have the eight billion promised all delivered in 2020. It would have been catastrophic, and that we really did need to front load as much of that mm. as possible. And so I think that that's that was that was very welcome. That was, you know, when you consider all the cuts to, to other departments, the pressure on other departments. I think that was um, that was probably the most we could possibly have had delivered. So I was very pleased to see that. But so there was a sting in the tail that some of it 
has been a transfer from public health grants. And, and I consider, as do people who work in the service, that, that public health is funded by NHS. It is. It's the sexual health clinics, it's the drug and alcohol clinics, it's the, it's the core business of the NHS in prevention as well as frontline delivery. So uh, it's challenging times um, for public health. Absolutely.